Hi listeners and welcome to the True Crime Weekly Podcast, a podcast that is based in San Diego and hosted by me, Alina Trujillo, and my producer, Jose Fernandez. This is a podcast where I will be bringing you stories of murders, infamous cases, and unsolved mysteries. And this week, I'm going to tell you about a case that happened in the early 1980s where Minnesota law enforcement were terrorized by a series of disturbing anonymous phone calls from a serial killer that targeted and murdered young women. This is the story of the Weepy Voice Killer. The murders started on December 31st, 1980. 20-year-old Karen Potak was in St. Paul, Minnesota for a New Year's Eve party with her sisters. But Karen left between midnight and 1 a.m. to go home. Karen was wandering around the streets drunk when all of a sudden, Karen got attacked. Karen was bludgeoned with a tire iron. Karen got hit with a tire iron 10 times. 10 times? 10 times. That's insane. Yeah. So after the attack at around 3 a.m., police received a 911 call from a man asking police to send a squad and ambulance to Mamberg Manufacturing Company and Machine Shop. And Jose, do you want to listen to the clip? Oh, I want to listen to this. Are you sure? Absolutely. You're not going to be able to sleep at night. I'm just telling you this right Is now. Is that creepy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Okay, that was really creepy. I told you. What's up with that? I've never heard a voice like that before. Mm -hmm. You want to know a fun fact? Sure. When I originally heard about this case, you want to know what I pictured when I heard his voice? What? (laughs) The, the... I'm about to date myself like I did in the other episode. But remember that movie Scream? Mm-hmm. The mask? Yeah. I picture that mask making those phone calls. That guy talking with his yes. phone? <laughs> it was like a combination of like the movie The Mask or the movie... Um, it was a scary movie. Scary movie. No, scary movie was Scream. The Funny Bunny. Scream. The Funny Bunny. <laughs> yes. Anyway, <laughs> fun fact. <laughs> okay. Okay, so first responders found the body of Karen beaten and stripped nude in a snowbank. Karen had multiple wounds to her head and neck area, leaving her brain exposed. Her brain exposed? Yes. Oh my God. No, it gets better. Guess what? What? Karen survived the attack. You're kidding. No, she survived the attack. However, because he left her with such serious wounds, that she experienced brain damage and Karen would not remember the attack. Oh, you gotta be kidding. Mm-hmm. I know, that's frustrating. So with Karen not being able to remember the attack and having brain damage, police would release a portion of that 911 call that we just played to the public in hopes that people would recognize the voice. However, no one was able to identify the weepy voice caller and more than a year went by before police officers would hear from the weepy voice caller again. Again? Again. First, you know, I can't believe this poor girl. She once she survived, but can you imagine waking up Her brain up to was that? exposed. But waking but up I mean, to that, not well, even knowing what happened to you. Yeah, not knowing what happened, which I guess in a sense 
I mean, would you say that that's kind of good that she wouldn't remember such a like horrific such event? A, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. But it is frustrating to law enforcement because now she can't identify the guy and, you know. Right. And this was the first. She was Sarah one Kelly, of the first. She was, she was one of the first. So, okay. I'm about to play you another clip. Oh, another one. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. I just stabbed somebody with a nightstick. Finally, I can't stop myself. I can't kill somebody. All right. I think that one was even creepier than the last one. So can you hear what he says? He said, I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. God damn, will you find me? Isn't that just, that is you know, really for those people that couldn't make out what he was saying. <laughs> but so now he's talking about another victim. So on June 3rd, 1981, 18 year old Kimberly Compton who was a student from Wisconsin, had arrived at St. Paul in search of a job. Only Kimberly wouldn't get a chance. A group of teenagers were playing near a construction site in St. Paul when they discovered the body of Kimberly. Kimberly suffered wounds to her chest, stomach, inner thighs, and had been strangled with a shoelace. Later, the medical examiner would determine that Kimberly was stabbed a total of 61 times 61 61 times i mean that just sounds like so angry mm-hmm. like what's what's driving it, this it doesn't match kill? the voice does it no not <laughs> at all i mean i can't even imagine what this guy looks like mm-hmm. oh and i'll make sure to post pictures on instagram and our um website so that our listeners can see it but no the voice does not match him at all really? like you guys have to go oh, in and see it see okay. so crime scene investigators found no clues at the crime scene however 48 hours after the murder of kimberly compton police would receive yet another call from the caller confessing to the murders and jose i just love torturing you so i'm gonna play you the clip of that <laughs> so but he confessed it this time listen oh wow just okay. listen here we go Okay, so then at the end he pleads, I won't kill anybody. I'll try not to kill anybody else. I'll try not to Can kill anybody. Can you please anybody. get that straight? Oh, He's okay. going to try his hardest, okay? Well, he hasn't tried very hard so far. And, and he makes it seem like something is making him do it. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't yeah. even know it. Yeah, that's, that's what's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, you're trying to get me to go into, like, my horror mode and be like, I'm going Because of what you're saying, like, it sounds like somebody's making him do it. Like the, like the possession of the house mm-hmm. is making him do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's creepy. Okay. So enough sidebar. Police were not sure that this was the murderer calling them until the weepy caller made the statement of, I stabbed somebody with an ice pick. And that was something that only the killer would have known since the police didn't reveal that information to the media. And I'm sure it's not common. Like an ice pick? Right. Who uses that? Yeah, exactly. So with police officers suspecting that it was the killer calling them, they immediately start to trace the phone call, but unfortunately, the call was too short for them to trace. Oh. 
And which, by the way, here's another fun fact. All right, here we go. So when I was little, you know how I've always told you, like I used to watch America's Most Wanted and all that stuff and with my grandmother. Rescue 911. Rescue 911. <laughs> so when I was young, and I used to hear, oh yeah, police officers were able to trace the call. Yeah, I yeah. thought, like, literally, like, you know how back in the day we had, once again, I'm aging myself, but we had those those phones with the cord. Yeah. A Do you not see where phone? I'm going with this? Oh. I thought that they would literally grab the cord and just, anyway, fun fact. So well, that was an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> so the weepy caller, however, ends up calling again to apologize for stabbing Kimberly. And in the call that he made to police, the weepy caller states, don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry for what I did to Kimberly Compton. I couldn't help it. I can't think of getting locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'll try not to kill anybody else. So I don't know if you were able to catch all that in that clip. Yeah, that it's hard, it's hard to make out. One, his mm-hmm. voice, and obviously yeah. it's kind of like old audio, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so he's he's not as creepy when you read it versus actually hearing him. Yeah, he's trying, okay? So he's trying real hard. But due to the weepy caller calling back, police are able to trace that second call and they end up tracing the call to a bus stop phone booth. And police officers rush to the phone booth. However, when they arrive, the phone booth is empty. And due to police officers only having these phone calls to go off of, police officers start to listen to police stations' backlogs of recorded phone calls. And it's not until then that they make a stunning connection that the person that had called them on New Year's Eve to tell them about Karen Potak mm-hmm. is the same person. So that's how they identify. Of course, this voice, I'm sure mm-hmm. it's very noticeable yeah you <laughs> think the same guy yeah and i had read during my research that they had you know played that um those clips to the public because to your point it was just so distinct that they figured somebody has to know who this guy is you know yeah. like if i heard that voice i'd be like oh yeah that's jose that is jose <laughs> you know well i wonder if, he, if it's, he's always speaking like that or if it's only when he's in like distress because obviously when he's in distress that's when he's been making those phone calls yeah but still like wouldn't you know wouldn't you know if your family member wouldn't you know what your family member sounds like when they're in distress yeah yeah for sure so that's what i'm saying though and when they release those clips nobody like i mean they got phone calls of oh it could be this person it could be that person it could be santa claus like but no there was no yeah this guy Mm -hmm. wow can you imagine santa claus something like that I don't know where Santa Claus came from. But so on August 5th, 1982, 40-year-old Barbara Simmons was out at the bar when she met a man at the bar and she offered him a cigarette. And the man and Barbara would engage in conversation and eventually the man would offer Barbara a ride home. And Barbara told the bartender that she hoped that the man was an okay guy because she just needed a ride home. And she was about to leave the bar with him. So the next morning, a paper boy was doing his deliveries when he spotted a body along the banks of the Mississippi River in Minneapolis. The body was identified as 40-year-old nurse Barbara Simmons. 
No way. Mm-hmm. So another one. Yes. Man. And unfortunately, like, obviously she was having drinks with him the right. night prior. So Barbara had been stabbed a hundred times. A hundred? A hundred times. But unlike the other killings this time, police officers had a clue. They knew that Barbara had been at the bar the night prior. And witnesses were able to give police officers a description of the man that Barbara had gone home with. So I know. So the description that was given was that the man was around 40 years old, six feet tall, 185 pounds, white with a receding hairline. So once after this murder, the police received another phone call from this weepy caller stating, please don't talk. Just listen. I'm sorry. I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. So once again, I'm going to torture you with it because I have another clip. Of Of that? What you just said? Mm -hmm. Oh, this should be good. Okay. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over So while police officers are trying to track down this man that Barbara Simmons was last seen with, on August 21st, 1982, 19-year-old sex worker Denise Williams was working her usual street in Minneapolis when a man approaches her for her services. And after discussing the price with a man, Denise gets into the car. Once the man gets what he pays for, he drives down a dead-end street. And right away, Denise realizes that the man isn't taking her to the same street where he had picked her up from. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And before she could even process the situation, the man attacks her with a screwdriver. Screwdriver? Yeah, he, like, pulled it out of his glove compartment, and he's now stabbing her with the screwdriver. So the man stabs Denise 15 times. But that was not enough to stop Denise from screaming. And you know what she ended up doing? What did she do? She was like feeling around the car. And then she ended up feeling like a a bottle, like a soda bottle, like a Coke Mm -hmm. bottle from back in the day, you know, when they were like um, glass. Oh, a glass bottle. Yeah. 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 So she ended up smashing the bottle into the man's face. Denise's screams (laughs) were heard by a man that lived nearby. And this man goes to see where the screams are coming from. And he finds Denise and the man in the car. And the guy starts to wrestle with Denise's attacker. And that causes Denise's attacker to flee the scene. Wow. Yeah. He's like probably her hero, yeah, you know? Yeah, Samaritan right there. Right. So in the meantime, Denise's attacker drives back to his apartment and when he sees the damage that Denise had left on his face from smashing the bottle into his face, guess what? The attacker calls 911. No way. Yes. You're kidding. He called 911 after he just attacked a woman. mm -hmm. So once again, I'm going to play this clip for you. I'm all cut up. I'm all cut up. I'm bleeding. Where are you bleeding from? So the caller states that he's bleeding from his arm, his face, his head. Did you notice his voice was not as weepy or 
Yeah. It sounded a little weird. He was, again, under distress, but... Not... Yeah. But this is the amazing part. This is the amazing part. And that's why, like, I've always, like, hands down, 911 operators, what they go through, like, I don't understand. Because most of the time when I hear the 911 calls, Mm -hmm. I'm always like, what did he say? Like, I would make the worst 911 operator. I'd be like, what? Hmm? Can you repeat that? What? Can you repeat I, that? He's speaking a little louder. Yeah, to be like, you're yelling, I can't hear her. You're crying. Like, I'd be the worst. Yeah. But this 911 operator, like, I'm telling you, they're my heroes. The 911 operator notices right away that this man sounds a whole lot like the other man that had been calling them. They were the ones that gave the nickname of the weepy caller, by really? the way. Yeah, because they were like, well, okay. So let me give you a little history background. So, back in this time, they didn't actually have, like, an official 911 operator like we do now. Mm-hmm. It used to just go to their police department. And they were, like, the 911 operators, quote, unquote. And then they would dispatch the fire department, whatever it was that they okay, needed. Right. So, it wasn't, like, an actual 911 operator, okay? Mm-hmm. But because it's usually more than likely the police officer was picking up these phone calls already that he was like, wait a minute, this is starting to sound awfully familiar. Wow. So the 911 operator immediately makes a connection between the weepy caller and the man that was calling 911 to report the incident with Denise because see, Denise's hero, the Good Samaritan that came and helped her, he had already called 911 before the weepy caller called. Because the weepy caller, he fleed the scene, drove home, and then called 911 when he saw his face. Like, once he saw how much he was bleeding, he was like, oh my God, I need to call 911. I need need help. help. I need help. It's an emergency. Right. But between the time that, you know, all this was happening, Denise and her hero were already... They had already called 911. So 911 operator dispatches police officers to this man's apartment. So police officers end up arresting Paul Michael Stefani and later charging him of second degree assault. Wait, so that's the weepy voice killer then, right? Yes. So that's his name. Paul Michael Stefani is his name. Okay. About time. <laughs> yeah, his real name is not the weepy caller killer. I mean, he's gone for years and, and not only that, but he, you know, he was mm-hmm. calling and admitting to this stuff. Mm-hmm. He is, just wanted to get stopped. Yeah. Because remember, he kept on saying that. Like, I just, like, somebody come find me. I can't stop myself. Like, he kept on repeating that over and over. That's just crazy. It makes you wonder what exactly was driving it. Mm-hmm. voices in your head, multiple personalities. Mm-hmm. What was it? When they arrest Paul, police officers were also able to connect Paul to the murder of Barbara Simmons. Thanks to those who had witnessed Barbara leaving with this man and given his description. Because remember, she met him at the bar. They had a few drinks. She thought he was cute. They talked and he was like, oh, let me give you a ride home. So there was a lot of witnesses that saw Paul. Right. So now with... Paul under arrest, all those witnesses were able to say, yes, that's that's him. him." Finally. (laughs) Yeah. So Paul ended up going to trial. And while at trial, Paul's ex-wife, sister, and former roommate, they all testified that the 911 calls made by this weepy callers, that it sounded a whole lot like Paul. So they're saying, like, yep, this is him. him. 
So does, does that, that hold? As... No. Oh. No. That was not enough to connect Paul to the weepy collar killings. So Paul ended up getting 40 years in prison for the attack of Denise Williams and for the murder of Barbara Simmons. Okay. And in 1997, Paul Michael Stefani was diagnosed with cancer and was given less than a year to live. And due to the news of his cancer, Paul ended up confessing to the murders of Kimberly Compton and Kathleen Green. Paul also ended up confessing to the attack and beating of Karen Potak. Who's Kathleen Greening? Okay, so here's the thing. So on July 21st, 1982, Carol Kellogg arrived at her 33-year-old friend Kathleen Greening's home. So the pair were scheduled to leave on a girl's vacation to Mechanic Island. But Carol knocked on the front door but got no answer. So she let herself in the door because the door was unlocked Mm -hmm. and she started calling out for Kathleen and searching each room as she went by room by room. She ended up getting to the bathroom and the light was on. So she knocked on the door. There was no answer. She stopped and pushed open the door And that's when Carol discovers her friend Kathleen dead in the bathtub. Oh, in the bathtub. Kathleen was naked, face up in the water, her head under the tub, and her knees bent forward in front of the tub. So police had ruled to death an accident, but those that didn't agree with the police, they, because see, here's the thing. Obviously, what do we always say? When, because Kathleen used to be married. She was divorced. So, if she, exactly. So, the police, when they came into the house, they saw her in the bathtub. They just said, oh, you know, maybe she was taking a bath. It's an accident. And people started to blame Kathleen's estranged husband. Mm -hmm. But those charges were never filed against him because, again, police were like, no, this was an accident, nothing to see here. So police officers never suspected that Kathleen was another victim of the weepy callers since no phone call was ever made after Kathleen's murder. And remember, after every single murder that the weepy caller committed, he would call. Yeah. Kind of right. like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I did it again. Yeah. I won't do it again. I'll but try not to did, do it again. Right. He did not do that with Kathleen. And I don't either. know why. No. Yeah. I don't, so this was he... completely different out of his, you know, MO. So police never thought that Paul had anything to do with it. Right. So, okay, after he had confessed to that, did they agree or was there not enough evidence? No, he confessed to this. He confessed to this. So that's what shocked police officers. Because, okay, so let me give you a little bit of more background about Paul, a.k.a. the weepy caller. Mm -hmm. It was known that he was like, he grew up Catholic. He was like a devoted Catholic. And obviously, you know, what happens in Catholic religion, like any anything that you sin... You have to be 
forgiven, right? right. You have to confess. You have to you go have to confession and all this stuff. And, and then you can go into heaven. So that's why in one of the clips, you even hear Paul saying, I'm not going to get into heaven. So he was making these phone calls to release himself of these crimes and kind of like saying, you know, I'm, I'm confessing to this. Now I can get into heaven. Just like that, huh? Yeah. It, well, so I mean, that's it wasn't why at that the easy. very end he confessed. Right. So at the very end, that's everything. why he, he confessed of everything. He wasn't trying to hold back. Well, he was like, I did is, this and this and this and that. Like, yeah. I guess I, I don't understand why it took him so long. I mean, that wasn't until, what, 1997? Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, when, when he did Well, again, this, because he was, he was a devoted Catholic. So think about it. 1997, he gets diagnosed with cancer, and they tell him, you have less than a year to live. And he yeah. hasn't confessed, because he only got charged with Denise, you know, the attempted, or the attack on her. Right. And the murder for Barbara. So... Now, it's like you've given less than a year to live, and I haven't confessed to everything that I've done. Now is my time. So that, because obviously, I have cancer. I'm not going to beat gonna it. Be here exactly. I'm not going to, I want to get into heaven, so let me confess to all this. Yeah. So, what's? I guess what I'm saying is, days after doing each one of these, he'd call. Mm -hmm. With the exception of Kathleen Green, right? right? Which we don't know why. So he was confessing to it. He mm -hmm. confessed on the phone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when it came down to being, you know, once he got arrested, mm -hmm. he wasn't willing to confess immediately. Mm -mm. So that's what I find that odd that he wouldn't have done that immediately thereafter. Because it made it seem like, oh, yeah, I feel bad. No, it's true. He didn't feel bad. He was mm -hmm. just trying to get something out of it. Yeah, at the end, he was just trying to wipe his slate clean. Right. Pretty much, you know. Something that I wanted our listeners to know, Jose, was how obviously, like, right now we're recording during the day. We usually record at night when True. everything's quiet. So, you know, it, it was definitely, this episode was definitely something interesting to just record during the day. Hence my scary bunny comment and all the other comments. Funny bunny. <laughs> Funny bunny. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just thought that that would be a fun fact for everybody to know that, you know, usually me and Jose are used to recording at night. And now it's like in the middle of the day. It's bright, which I kind of wish we would have done it at night so I could have scared you a little bit more with it. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's another fun fact for everybody. We are recording during the day rather than night. Usually it's nighttime. Mm-hmm. A few drinks. Yeah. So in 1998, a year after his confession, Stefani died at Oak Park Heights Maximum Security Prison when he was 53 years old. If you want to look at pictures and want more information on the cases we cover, you can head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Podcast True Crime Weekly. And I would truly love it and appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review and subscribe onto Apple Podcast. The only way that people find out about us is through subscribers and reviews. Thanks for listening. I swear I won't do it again. Oh my God.